You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. John Eastwood is a partner at the law firm Iger. He was previously interviewed for Talking Taiwan in 2012, and we've invited him back on to Talking Taiwan. John talked about some of the changes he's seen in Taiwan from a legal perspective in the 20 years that he's resided in Taiwan. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATWA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATWA was founded in 1988, and its mission is, one, to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, two, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, three, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. Four, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. And five, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, John. Oh, very glad to be here, Felicia. Great. So um, we're kind of doing this in a little bit of a different order than I usually do because we released an episode of you from about 10 years ago. And I wanted to reintroduce you to our audience because in that interview, we didn't really talk so much about you and what brought you to Taiwan and how long. And at this point, you've been in Taiwan for more than 20 years. So I thought we could start by talking about what first brought you to Taiwan? Yeah, I, you know, I, I had lived, um, I was a journalist before I went to law school. And when I was, uh, you know, just starting out, I worked at the Asian Sources Media Group, and I became um, in their US, in their Chicago area office. And mm-hmm. I became aware that, that it seemed that Asia was getting ready to take off, and and I looked at a lot of China's, uh, you know, the the way that they were bringing in a lot of quality control and other things. And I didn't know much mm-hmm. about Taiwan at that stage, um, but I studied Chinese. I took night classes, and then uh, you know, a couple of years later, when I went to law school, I, you know, ended up uh, working for a Chinese law professor, and my law school sent me out to Asia, to mm-hmm. to um, Beijing and Shanghai and uh, Singapore, and I even spent a period after law school at in Beijing at uh, uh, Beijing University's law department as a visiting oh. scholar. Mm-hmm. And when I got back to the United States, it was like reverse culture shock. Yes, I I really wanted to get back to where things happen and I felt Asia and I do feel that Asia is where things happen it's like buildings come up and come down Mm -hmm. and businesses start and people embrace new technologies very quickly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, you know I grew up in a family where where uh, my grandparents had lived several years in Asia so I I guess I was raised not to think of it as being very foreign to me so um, the first chance I had to come back to Asia was to come to Taiwan. So moving to Taiwan, I, you know, I didn't really know exactly what to expect. Um, I, 
I, it was my first time coming here when I moved here, and I was uh, I was ready potentially. I bought the cheapest possible IKEA and other furniture uh, because <laughs> in case I needed to, if I if I found I hated it, I wanted to be able to to um, run, and I still have. Um, <laughs> You know, a table and uh, you know a couple of chairs and uh, you know, but most of my furniture has been replaced over the years. And I found <laughs> it was a really com- compelling, nice place to be. And I got to work on really interesting legal issues. And the and and Taiwan is like a very high tech kind of place to be. Well, how and, did uh, you so live I, in Taiwan though, as opposed to China? Like of all places to decide to be in Asia, why Taiwan specifically, or how? I'm curious. You know, um, in the when I was looking to change jobs, I uh, in get back out to Asia. I I uh, ended up getting recruited as is uh, as, essentially as an expat to come. Mm-hmm. I was working for a large multinational law firm. I had helped out with okay. the process for uh, getting their Shanghai Ministry of Justice approvals, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, but then I I was looking to get to actually move to Asia, and I got a job offer. To move to Taiwan, okay. and I, I really, you know, jumped right in at that because it was a it was a Taiwan firm. In those days, it had um, it's uh, you know they, the the partners, of course, you know, is, is typical for a lot of firms. They they, they split up and stuff and became different firms. But mm-hmm. but um, you know, when I came out, it was a great chance to work on a large portfolio of very interesting cases mm-hmm. and. I really enjoyed working with the different departments of the firm and the different partners in the firm, and you know, so that that I found really compelling. And and then I, you know, a few years later, when the, after the the partners split in that firm, I, I changed over to a Swiss firm. And the firm I'm in now is essentially uh, the same one I've been in since 2003. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that we changed our name oh, wow. um, a while mm-hmm. back, but. Okay. Uh, uh, that's why we have the quirk of uh, the Iger law firm name. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, we did the Asian thing of naming ourselves after a mountain, but we chose a Swiss mountain as a oh. token of respect, <laughs> a tip of the hat. Our firm then and our firm now, um, we have, uh, we have um, lawyers on both sides of the strait. We have, uh, you know, a Shanghai office, we have a Taipei office and, um, you know, but between the two and, you know, I mean, I know that there's people who love living in Shanghai, mm-hmm. um, but I like having access to, you know, like um, a free democratic uh, system, um, not not as a voter, not as like in those senses of the democratic system, but I like living mm-hmm. in a democracy. And I like that mm-hmm. there's been a great progression of rights within Taiwan over the years. I mean, I, I do feel like there's been a... Um, you know, I, I've gotten to watch a lot of good incremental changes uh, to the legal system here, and I enjoy being part of that. What about you? What area of the law do you focus on? I do a lot of, um, I came in with a litigation background um, and a lot of intellectual property litigation, and uh, which eventually, having seen, you know, how, uh, how cases will work out, um, that probably helped me a lot in terms of coming up with intellectual property strategies. So I guess, uh, you know, so IP was really what we call in the in the legal biz IP, uh, intellectual property, uh, which right. are trademarks, copyrights, patents, and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. that was something that was uh, 
um, sort of the beginning. Um, and then, uh, especially as, as the practice expanded in and around uh, protection of trade secrets in which employees are extremely important for that, our employment practice really took off. And um, we'd always had a corporate practice and I always have to understand, um, you know, especially for tech companies, things like that, um, you know, uh, you know the, the ins and outs of corporate and, and tax. Um, but I would say my own practice kind of tends to um, center on uh, like basically IP technology, data protection, those kinds of techie type things. And then the very human side of things, which is the employment law issues. It's been 10 years since the interview that you did with Talking Taiwan, and I was actually listening back to it. It was done around, I think, in the fall of 2012, and you were talking about how you had just had your son, Jake. You'd attended the Democratic National Convention, and it was very interesting to me because you spoke about uh, former President Clinton speaking there and then Vice President Joe Biden, who now is the president. So it's really interesting to reflect on that and think about uh, where you are now. I'm curious to know, can you talk about what you've been up to since then in these last 10 years? <laughs> sure, sure. No, I, I, I stayed on the DNC. I stayed on the Democratic National Committee um, through two terms, which is, you know, I got term limited out. Uh, Okay. Uh, and it's also good for other people to get in. I yes. mean, actually, I'm, I'm not complaining, um, mm -hmm. but I did it for eight years uh, from 2012 to 2020. So I okay. was at the, you know, 2016 convention and the, the 2020 virtual convention. And I got to um, spend a lot of time and I still stay in contact with a lot of, you know, the DNC members and mm -hmm. party officials and stuff. And I, I chair the Democrats Abroad Taiwan again. So I'm I'm uh, in the middle of a second term um, mm -hmm. this time around doing it. So, um, but it's a lot of, uh, you know, I really think it's important to stay involved with politics back home. And I, and I do try to like educate, I guess it's, uh, it's very important to educate politicians back home about mm -hmm. what's really going on. And, you know, they'll hear something in the news and they'll send me an email. And, you know, so a DNC member from, from uh, California or from Virginia or some other place will say, well, what's really going on with this? And so I'll, I'll be happy to answer them. Or, I, you know, I, I do send out a lot of postcards. Um, I, I'm an avid writer, <laughs> corresponding, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, postal correspondent. I like sending out postcards with beautiful pictures uh -huh. of, of Taiwan or historical pictures uh -huh. of Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I like them people to understand the context of, because, um, the struggle for democracy for Taiwan was was a particularly brutal and difficult one, uh, but it's their own. It wasn't gifted to them after World War II. It wasn't mm -hmm. some sort of, mm -hmm. you know, thing like that. So, you know, I think it, there is something very special here. Yeah, it's really important, uh, the work that you're doing, uh, creating awareness and letting people know. And um, it's hard for people to understand because I think, some people may have the perception that, oh, once martial law is lifted, then, you know, the door is open for democracy. But um, there is a lot that needed to happen after that <laughs> to get to where we are now. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I think what, 
what happens too, I mean, I saw this quite a bit with COVID is that people would look at, you know, um, Taiwan's low COVID numbers for the first many, many months of the, mm -hmm. um, you know, of the, of the, of the, the pandemic. And they, they were like, wow, you know, you must have like draconian, horrible, like, you know, well, you live in a dictatorship. So I, and I'm like, no, I don't. What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> like, how and, do you control all that? Keep it all under control. <laughs> you guys wear masks. Oh my God. You know, and I'm, and I'm like, what, you know, I, I, you know, my wife made me wear masks whenever I took the kids to the, you know, long before COVID, my, my wife yeah. made me wear masks to take the kids mm -hmm. to the pediatricians because it's a mm -hmm. place full of drippy, sick, sneezing, coughing kids. Yeah. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, and like, so people were never hostile towards masks here and we already had been through, you know, SARS in 2003. So we were already very, you know, like we already something's never relaxed. I mean, if you remember right before the pandemic, one of the mm -hmm. key things we saw, you know, that, you know, was the, um, you know, pork importation and the, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the possibility of sickness coming through pork products. Mm -hmm. And there was all these viral videos of people being caught at the airport and mm -hmm. fined heavily for trying to bring in, you know, they'd be like, Oh, what's, you know, the sniffer dog finds a, a bunch of pork in the, someone's suitcase. And the person's uh -huh. like, well, you know, they were, they would go through the 12 stages of grief and loss <laughs> right in front of the camera, um, you know, right. denial and, you know, oh, there's nothing in there, you know, and, and, um, <laughs> oh, it's not bad. Oh, you know, there's, there's like you know, 20 kilograms of pork in their oh, bag, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just, it's, it's very funny because it's like, you know, it would be like, so I think right before the pandemic, even there are a lot of videos about a health related measure mm -hmm. involving high fines for people for miscreants. And what you, you also would see is, um, you know, the ability of the authorities to smartly, humanely not put up with BS from people. And <laughs> you see that with the early days of the pandemic, where there was a gentleman who came to Taiwan, he took a, a bunch of fever reducers to be able to board his flight to oh, come wow. to Taiwan, because there wasn't really PCR tests or any of that kind of stuff, oh, you know, wow. no rapid tests back then. But uh -huh. he took a bunch of fever reducers, hopped on a plane, came to Taiwan, buzzed around. He knew he was sick, and he went around to like five or six different places. And wow. that was a wake-up call, the idea of like a sick person knowing they were sick and running all over the, you know, all over oh, the place. In the 10 years since your last interview, or maybe even in the 20 years that you've been in Taiwan, I thought we could talk a little bit about that too, because it's quite interesting how Taiwan's uh, legal system or laws or even society has changed in the time that you've lived in Taiwan. Uh, I know this could be like a really huge question <laughs> that I'm asking. So, um, There's a lot of landscape there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I invite you to talk maybe more specifically about the legal system or laws that have changed. Like for me, I'm thinking about, as you've mentioned, intellectual property since that's your area. Maybe you could talk about that, how there have been changes and improvements in Taiwan since uh, the time that you've been there. And then maybe about like anything related to like corruption or other legal issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, for me, the big signature, 
like change signal was uh, back in 2002 when Taiwan acceded to the you know, to the WTO, and that gave us a whole vocabulary in common. Because right. um, I chair the European Chamber of Commerce uh, in Taiwan, the, the ECCT's um, IPR committee, and I've done that since 2001. Mm-hmm. So I've had a chance to see sort of the how the reaction from officials was before the accession and, okay. and in the years since. And so being able to talk with them about, like, um, you know, there were some things that, you know, like, for example, um, unduly burdensome uh, documentary requirements. And mm-hmm. you, so if you wanted to get the police to raid a bunch of counterfeits in the old days, um, mm-hmm. they would have these, you know, the officials would demand that you have a notarized and legalized power of attorney. Well, mm-hmm. you know, WTO said, hey, you, you shouldn't really do that, um, you know, because you shouldn't have these overly burdensome documentary requirements why why do why in this case the power of attorney would be the document that uh, through which the say trademark rights holder would authorize their mm-hmm. lawyers of their choice whose bills they pay and who they communicate with it, it was the, the the authorization that you present to the government to the police or to the prosecutor or to the court mm-hmm. to show that you really were the lawyer what well, they would say well you know um we need to see that notarized and legalized, like, you know, like, like the like the five years of um, paid bills and instructions <laughs> and emails and things like that wouldn't be enough. And the fact that, like, you know, that as lawyers, we, you know, we really shouldn't be running around and pretending to represent clients we don't right. represent, mm-hmm. and so on. But they would say, and and. You know, some of the techo offices overseas in those days were mm-hmm. were really great. I mean, you could get the document notarized and legalized and all that stuff through the system at a techo office in Berlin or, or um, in Washington, D.C., like, you know, like super fast. And, right. But if you, like, I remember one document just sitting in the Rome techo office for two months. Oh. And I was like, you know, and, and so the when we first talked to the Taiwan government about this, in the old days, they would say, well, where are the cases? What's the case number? What's the case number? And I'd be like, well, huh. there isn't a case number. They said, well, you don't have anything you then. And it would like be really confrontational. Wow. After WTO accession, they started to understand because mm-hmm. I, I would, I would, I kept engaging with them. And I said, mm-hmm. well, um, the reason we don't have a case number is because we can't get a case number because that only happens when a case gets to court. But for all those situations where like investigators mm-hmm. um, find counterfeit goods, mm-hmm. they report it to the client. The client authorizes us as the law firm to go represent them. Um, and but the, but you see, the thing is, the specific authorization letter, this power of attorney, has to be notarized and legalized. Well, if you have to wait two months for that to be authorized um, to to go through the techo office, then like the goods are gone. Like no yeah. counterfeit seller just hangs on to stuff. They move their business people. They move things yeah. in and out. And I, mm-hmm. I, it was like it was it was this nice realization. And actually, um, I have to give a lot of credit for the to the Sifa um, Yuan Yuan Zhang, the Judicial Yuan President back then. Ong Yue Sheng was just absolutely. He was a he was a a very famous law professor that people just absolutely from an academic side of things loved mm-hmm. and he was wonderful in engaging with the international community and in trying to make the judiciary 
better. Mm-hmm. Um, and he engaged with, there was a big meeting we had back in, I guess, 2002 um, on the third, you know, like it just, just after, after the uh, WTO accession in which okay. we met uh, the European chamber, the American chamber, the Japanese chambers all mm-hmm. went and had a big meeting at the Sufi Yuan. And um, he issued a letter in response to that, which was like basically to, to the judges, look, if there is, <laughs> if there's not really any doubt um, that, that an, a law firm is authorized, um, then don't demand notarized, legalized powers of attorney. Because like, you know, like that kind of idea of second guessing the choice of yeah. counsel and getting in the right. way and throwing an right. extra burden in right. there. So there was stuff like that. Like, you know, it wasn't always, there was like this, there was a really kind of, you know, pre-WTO, there was an awful adversarial kind of, you know, um, you try to talk with somebody about a legitimate concern and mm-hmm. they would basically shout back at you that oh, like, wow. you know, you're an mm-hmm. idiot and you didn't know what, you didn't know oh what the problem goodness. was. And then after WTO, there was a bit of a, like, like Taiwan raised its game and became really much more willing to interact about, you know, about these issues and to really, you know, sit down and talk with people about things. And I found it was, it was, it was really wonderful. And I, I know that with, um, um, you know, it's actually kind of fun to see. It's of course our, our current, um, Minister of Economic Affairs, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, Madam Wong, is, is uh, somebody that we dealt with quite a lot because um, she used to be Director General mm-hmm. of the Taiwan IP office. Okay. Um, and she was sort of the, the, the enforcement czar um, for a while okay. for TIPO, for Taiwan IP office uh, previously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she she's um, extremely smart, capable, and dedicated mm-hmm. to trying to get to mm-hmm. the right result. So that's uh, you know it's it's nice to see these yeah. changes, but you know I I do watch a lot of things about um, you know we do watch a lot of things about you know human rights issues right. um, okay. and there's there's room for progress in a few ways sure. uh, um, you know there's there's some things where it's like there seems to be a solution for example like a same sex marriage uh, mm-hmm. which is a cause near and dear to our firm our firm is quite diverse and. Okay. Uh, is very supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. And um, there are still, uh, because the law that allows for a form of same sex union is not Mm -hmm. quite, it doesn't quite give all the same rights as marriage, Mm -hmm. um, especially with regards to adoption or for, um, you know, reproductive kind of uh, issues. Mm -hmm. There's some, you know, things that really still, you know, I, I, it's not quite complete, but it is a, you know, a huge improvement over, you know, the sort of situation that, you know, uh, that Taiwan had before. And in Taiwan certainly is a leader in Asia mm-hmm. on this, on this front. Um, yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I did just interview someone from the Taiwan Equality Campaign for Pride Month, and she did touch upon those issues. So thank you for mentioning that as well and now for a short break hello listeners we're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content under 20 minutes long and we'd like to hear from you would you like to listen to shorter episodes what would you like to hear more of or less of 
Email us at podcast at talkingtaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante. If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. And it's very interesting to hear the background about how Taiwan improved its record on an intellectual property because I remember the days when piracy was a lot more rampant, you know, like the bootlegged or copied DVDs <laughs> and CDs and all that in the night markets and things like that. And even I remember because I usually I used to teach English in Taiwan and how students would just think nothing of photocopying an entire textbook. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, yes. Back in those days. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it's it's not all perfectly solved but definitely sure. the environment has changed and it also to some extent because the guys making and selling counterfeits first off the manufacturing of counterfeits has for many years now been moved over to mainland china and there's a mm -hmm. tendency for those goods mm -hmm. to be sent in you know, so people go and do online shopping to buy their fake stuff and they have sure. it sent in smaller packages which is which it's harder for customs to keep up with right. and so much of the instead of it being discs um so dvds and CDs are now kind of useful as coasters, I guess, or on, <laughs> right. you know, as reflective devices on old people's bicycles. <laughs> but um, uh, there, so what you don't, you know, you, so a lot of it's online. And if people, people, there's a lot of streaming videos that people True. have access to mm -hmm. um, uh, legitimate choices, which are more affordable than they were in the past. Um so I think what's happened is that there's been, on one side, the, techno the technology has changed so that legitimate choices for obtaining goods have has massively improved. And um, also the technologies used by the pirates and the counterfeiters mm -hmm. um, have also adapted. So there's not um, street side stalls filled with fake Abercrombie and Fitch t-shirts and stuff sure, like there used yeah, to be. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, but I mean, you know, there's there's certain things that I see as being like, um, I mean, there's certain areas I would see as room for improvement. So, so gay rights, um, mm -hmm. uh, LGBTQ plus rights right. is um, mm -hmm. one area for improvement. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that sometimes in the system it's frustrating because um, there's like a, I sometimes see a misuse of the, what I see is a misuse of the police for purely civil matters. So I feel that police should be more involved with just criminal matters. Um, but what you'll see is like, you know, when neighbors have some kind of thing they don't like about each other, they call the police. Um, oh. they, if they don't call the Li Jiang, you know, then they call the police and they, okay. uh, they and they, um, and we've seen things where it's like, well, you know, it's obvious that 
this wasn't deliberate. It's obvious that you, you know, so we, we often get called in and there's some of the trade offices have us on their lists of lawyers. And so people contact us and they say, oh, this and this have happened to me. And they called, you know, suddenly the police showed up in my home. Um, we even as law firm, we one time had a bunch of police from Geelong showed up and they, oh. they you know, they're like asking us about a, about a company that, you know, that, that was a client of ours. And, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, as a law firm, first off, there's confidentiality things, but we yes. were like, well, is this a criminal matter? Right. That was the first question is like, is this a right. criminal investigation? Is there actually anything criminal? Right. Is there, a, right. do you have an investigation underway? And they were like, mm-hmm. nope. And we're like, well, then, then <laughs> go back to Geelong. <laughs> <laughs> go back home. I mean, like, what are right. you doing here? Why, right. you know, if somebody right. has a question, if they want to send an attorney letter, if they want to ask something, if they want to get, in, if there's somebody who, yes. if there's some company, if you want to just idly ask, but don't, don't just show up. And, uh, I mean, it's a little bit like the way that people use uh, fire departments for pest control, which is very sweet that, uh-huh. um, that if you have a wasp's nest, you know, you can call the local <laughs> fire department and they will come over and re- remove it. But I always thought that was, a, you know, I'm like, oh my God, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I mean, what if he has a fire to go to? I mean, come on. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. There you go. <laughs> yeah, like, he's so over here in my place. Yeah. No. Yeah. So that's a question. Is like I don't know what the standards or uh, the regulations uh, that the police has for what they respond to. You know, maybe they need to review that. Like, what should they consider something that should be responded to if they get called? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had something kind of funny not long ago, where mm-hmm. where um, you know, a guy who lives somewhere in my neighborhood had parked their scooter. Now, there's I have a very tight um alleyway in which i you know we have to come out of our garage uh to drive through and this guy had he had literally parked his scooter in front of the no parking sign that was put there with the in that sign even has an explanation like if you park here we can't pull our cars out yeah we can't drive we can't pull out right. if you park here right. please don't park here it was all very politely yeah. worded and stuff yeah. but the guy literally parked his scooter in front of that oh, and wow. then like you know of course we had to move it well everyone who lives in taiwan you get used to the fact of having to move scooters a little bit like yeah. everyone who drives a scooter has right. to move another scooter at some point so yeah. they can park or to do other sure. and so i extremely carefully moved the scooter and then uh and no damage to it and no it then you know you move it because you know you it's like the golden rule and especially as a foreigner i'm really mm-hmm. quite aware that i want to create um uh, i i don't want to use up whatever goodwill is out there for yeah. me in the community mm-hmm. and i don't want to play into any bad stereotypes by like mm-hmm. being callous about someone's mm-hmm. property and stuff so i'm extra careful okay. so i moved sure. his scooter like a few inches um to get it out of the way of my you know as my wife was driving and and suddenly there was this uh, phone call from the police and and basically because the guy's scooter yeah. had been moved a few inches you know he had to you know he, he was like, "You damaged my scooter, and and I, you know, you have wow. to come to the police station now." And the police wow. were like, "You have to come to the police station now." And I'm like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> oh my goodness!" First off, like, like you know, first off, I knew I hadn't damaged the guy's scooter. Second, yeah. um, if I had, it would have been accidental and not deliberate. It, you know, it was very clear yeah. even from the video clip that you know, the security cameras had that, like, mm-hmm. all I had done is I had kind of wrestled it a few inches mm-hmm. to the side. Sure. Um, you know, in the way that one traditionally does, if you have a scooter that's had its front, 
you know thing locked. Uh, yeah. uh, so I was just like, oh, you know, this is no, this doesn't make sense. Why are the police involved? With this? So yeah. that's one thing. Um, the the love in Taiwan for people to file public insult cases, and this is like a dark part of you know martial law type systems throughout uh-huh. Asia and throughout the world yeah. is the use of okay. public insult laws um, uh-huh. to in the past to shut down um, free speech or to shut down. Um, people who are uh but it's actually currently not used by the government uh, in taiwan it's used by people to um to harass each other and so local taiwanese use it against local taiwanese and uh foreigners are at special risk um if you if you use um if you use a certain colorful language and there's mm-hmm. people who have been prosecuted, mm-hmm. you know, if they uh, if they drop an f bomb into the middle right. of something, and not even as an insult, but if they uh-huh. if they say it like as an emphasis, like oh, what the f are you doing? Yes. Um, but that's not actually insulting the person. It's not saying right. you are a you know terrible person and you you, yeah. sm- you, you smell bad or something. It's yeah. you know it doesn't attack them to the core, right. but it just right. it's it just uh, you know you come upon someone who's sudden. like a it was just said in the course of this interaction, right? Yeah, yeah. You come home. I think one of the cases involved an Australian man uh, coming mm-hmm. home, and he saw a locksmith mm-hmm. opening, mm-hmm. like you know, working on the lock on his door, and he said, "What the f are you doing?" And that <laughs> led to a case. And oh boy. Um, and then there's, you know, there's some some cases where I think it's, um, I you know, I'm not. You know, it, it, but, uh, you know, you, I mean, I, 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 as I caution everybody, uh, drop certain words out of your vocabulary. Don't even say, right. this is effing good coffee. Yeah. You know, you use those wow. kinds of, you use like wow. the, um, you know, right. just don't, because that's so open to misinterpretation. Someone just hears yeah. that and they've seen sure. enough American movies. They know mm-hmm. curse words. The, yes. I mean, you go to a basketball court in, um, any country in the world and they know what the F word is. Yeah. So this public insult law, like is the reason people are using this is kind of to like embarrass or harass people or put on record that this person's done something to them. Is that why people are still? Yeah. Using this? And it, what it does is it takes a lot of trivial interactions that should yeah. have ended there. Right. So I know that like, you know, a while back we worked on a case involving a, um, a journalist um, who, you know, some something happened on on the you know on the road where you know, the other driver was trying to cut him off or do some other kind of squeeze in where there was no space and and mm-hmm. almost caused an accident. So um, mm-hmm. so the the foreigner flipped off the you know the the other driver and the other driver then got really mad and because he had it on his dash cam video he took oh. it to the police and was like oh i was publicly insulted well no i mean nobody would know that that was nobody's going to say oh my god you know i know that license plate number i know that guy oh i impute terrible things to him i mean no nobody would so in a public insult sense of like nobody out there would really know who was being addressed by this and yeah. And, yeah. and and it's really but he went and he pursued it and i think because he was a um an executive at one of the large Taiwanese companies, eventually he started realizing that 
he would have to show up for criminal like hearings and you know police proceedings and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he suddenly realized that his time as a busy executive was now going to get hampered <laughs> by. So he settled for quite a bit less than the usual amount, but I've also seen it as an extortion tactic. I mean, it's it's used sometimes if you hate someone, then mm. people will make things up to try to hurt that person, mm. um, to try to institute a criminal proceeding against that, you know, against someone you don't like. And we, I, there's been cases that have been brought in English departments and elsewhere and, you know, mm-hmm. hikers on trails mm-hmm. um, and the willingness of the system to pursue these things. Um, the the uh, one other way in which, like, you know, it's frustrating sometimes is that police will pursue cases that clearly have no merit um, just because they don't dare tell people, like, this is foolish. And so, you know, several years ago, there was... Um, we had a matter in which a, a foreign national, um, you know, was uh, when you know he went he had, he and his fiance had split up and he went back to his old home, um, you know, without without the other person present. But he went back to his home to collect a few things of personal value. And you know, his ex's father was there, and the ex's father invited him into the premises so he could go collect a few things of, like that his family had given him and some personal items and uh, mm-hmm. so on. And he, he collected the items, and the guy says, okay, now we're going to the police department. He's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so the guy, he says, I'm not going to the police department with you. Like, you know, bye, and he departs. So then uh, the, the, uh, you know, the fiancé's father files a trespassing charge against him and the basic concept of trespassing is that you've like first off he was going into what had been um his own home uh, but aside from that um he had been invited in and the the idea that he'd been there unwanted or anything like that but the police never shut it down and the police allowed this to proceed and even when the guy admitted in front of the police yes i invited him in uh, they didn't say, well, then it's not it's not trespassing. Stop it, really. Come on now. Mm-hmm. No, but this it's the fact that law, the police are often used to harass people. Um, and it's not that I feel that this is a police state. It's not like I feel that the police, but I think that individual citizens uh, misuse um, the police and the police need to kind of stand up to that um, to some extent. Um in the same way that, like, when people lie in court, I wish that, um, you know, that that the uh, that they were more aggressive in handling um, these, uh, these, these uh, you know, the um, perjury, you know, perjury in court, um, because uh, you know it it really just delays and causes a lot of problems, especially when you see like, you know. Um, companies falsifying records and submitting it into mm-hmm. the court and those were falsifying emails or falsifying other mm-hmm. information and they submit it and that's that's become a um but you know so that would be that would be nice but i really actually find this really fascinating because i think it could indicate or tell us something about the culture and the social shaming that happens <laughs> and um accountability which is you know there's two sides to it it's unfortunate that people take advantage of it but then it's it's interesting to me because going back to the whole situation of covid and i realized like in taiwan there's like 
they have, do a really good job of tracing and the accountability and all that. And I have to wonder if it's related to some of these cultural things about like a, accountability and shaming, like if somebody is outed for, you know, not um, adhering to quarantine requirements or uh, whatever regulations there are in the case of COVID. So it's very interesting. Yeah, well, I, I think that's one of the things, um, I mean, our firm ran into a situation a while back with a, you know, there's there was a, um, uh, you know, in a case matter, there was a, in the early days of COVID, there was a, uh, a gentleman, a counterparty, um, and he owed our client a lot of money, you know, and he, mm -hmm. uh, but he, he actually, uh, he used it as an excuse uh, for not negotiating or not coming to meet with us. He used it as an excuse. He said, oh, no, I've just flown in from, uh, you know, such and such hotspot country. And so I'm, I'm in quarantine. I'm have to, I have to stay at home. I can't be out. Oh. And then, uh, you know, right after he told us that, um, I stopped by because his, you know, the, the person's, um, company was actually on my way home from work um, and not far from a place I needed <laughs> right. to run an errand to. So uh -huh. I stopped in and <laughs> I ended up meeting the guy and I was like, holy cow, he's, he's out and about. I, you know, yeah. I was, I was, I was aghast. I was like, here it was, you know, if, if it is true that he's supposed to be in quarantine and yes. the penalty for breaking quarantine right. is a million dollars, a million Taiwan yeah. dollars. So about right. 30,000 us. Right. And if you, if that's what's going on here, of course, like having him pay a million Taiwan dollars to the Taiwan government in the form of fines is not mm -hmm. really in my client's interest. Mm -hmm. But the bigger ethical, professional, public health issue, which is that yes. I know potentially this guy has broken quarantine. He told me yes. he was subject to quarantine and yet he is here and I have photographed wow. him. Wow. I've just taken a selfie from a socially distanced selfie yes. with him in the background, oh but I have, goodness. I have his business card. I know it is him. And wow. like, you know, but I thought, you know, like I'm, you know, we are part of the society. And even though I would much rather him, you know, pay my client the money he yes. owes instead right. of him, you know, paying it in fines to the government. Yes. Um, the public health issue is so much more serious right now yeah. that yeah. Um, we have to turn him in. We did. And oh, man, wow. that pissed him off, I think. Um, but, yeah. you know, hey, he was the one who was saying, I'm under quarantine. I can't meet with you. Yeah. Like, what, what kind of jerk yeah. uses a national, a public health disaster and then, situation? And then flagrantly just, uh, like, just disrespects that and doesn't do what he's claiming that he's supposed to be doing <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 and and his, he he it turns out he was arguing that he says well actually i didn't i wasn't you know i'm not sure of exactly but I, uh what excuse he gave to the government i didn't want to interrupt because i think you were talking about some things that you thought that could be improved was there anything else you wanted to add well you know th there's a couple of other things i mean like um I guess, you know, I mean, one thing that, you know, that, that you and I had, you know, corresponded about before was the Assembly mm -hmm. and Parade Act. Um, and what I see there is, you know, there's so many restrictions 
uh, I mean, you could argue that, like, um, yeah, you know, some of the provisions, you know, it's like uh, communism and secession shall not be asserted in any <laughs> assembly or parade. That's at Article Four of the uh, of the Act, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. even in its amended, you know, uh, provisions, uh, mm-hmm. which probably runs against, you know, some of the provisions of, um, you know, of the Constitution uh, mm-hmm. for for free speech and assembly. Um, but the other one I think is kind of sad because it also you know, says it's like, um, you know, that, uh, basically, um, um, you can't, you can't be the organizer of an outdoor assembly or parade mm. that requires approval in, unless you're an ROC national. And of course the, the, oh, people wow. have pointed out for a long time oh, that yes. if you're a foreigner, you can't protest. And I've never, uh-huh. I've never really felt the need to protest. Um, uh-huh. you know, or at least I, I try to compartmentalize, you know, I don't uh-huh. protest. Um, the Taiwan government about stuff, but I also realize that there are people who have a legitimate, have legitimate grievances with how they're treated sure. by the system. Sure. And um, down in Miaoli and uh, Taichung and other places mm-hmm. where just absolutely horrid things were, were done uh, with regards to, especially in Miaoli, uh, the, um, the foreign workers, the foreign uh, and when I buy foreign workers, uh, it's the blue collar workers that come in usually mm-hmm. from Southeast Asian nations uh, right. the, or the Philippines mm-hmm. or elsewhere. And their treatment um, by the system, by the officials, by the by the companies they work for. And I've seen yes. the rules, um, the worker rules that some of these places have put out. And it is disgusting. It is like the companies will actually... Um, uh, there's a Japanese photography company, lens company, um, that uh, in particular, you know, had uh, was you know very crass and threatening, and you know, and implemented rules for their Taichung area workers that went way. It was just racist, just oh. racist crap, and and wow. it, it's sad. It's sad to see that because there was some sort of, I mean. Their dormitories, they live in close proximity because that's the dormitories that they're given by their employer. And Meaning like the dimensions and the size of them. And how many people in a room and so right. on. And, okay. and, and these companies um, that, that you know, go and tell their workers, if you get COVID, um, we will hold you and your family responsible for all the losses that your sickness causes us. Wow. And you cannot take public transport. And you, a foreigner, you, uh, you, uh, a, a, with such uh-huh. dripping disdain, you yeah. cannot go outside and you mm-hmm. cannot ever go for walks or buy any food oh. unless you buy it from the company store at our inflated prices you know just that wow. kind of crap that was just horrible yeah. oh wow and you know it, the way that like you know the, the disdain with which you know these these guys treated their workers mm-hmm. you know it was just you know so that's there is clearly kind of that's one of the unfortunate things the treatment of uh, you know you see it like a few years ago down in Kaohsiung there was those uh, mm-hmm. you know factory workers uh, um, where the people running the factory forced them to buy all of their um, uh, mobile phone cards and all oh. of their um, food had to be bought oh. at inflated rates from the company oh. store and then when the workers got antsy about being inspected uh-huh. for this um, the uh-huh. people running the factory showed up with cattle prods 
Oh my goodness! Literally treating them like animals, and so wow. so the workers, um, you know, set fire to their factory. Oh boy! So, but I mean, like you know, yeah. I think that they should have a legitimate um, ability to assemble sure. and to to yeah. peacefully protest. Mm-hmm. Um, not to riot. Nobody gets to riot. Nobody gets to mm-hmm. damage things, break things, mm-hmm. hurt people, and so on. Mm-hmm. But like, they should have a right to be able to assemble and to be able to speak out because, um, you know, I mean, like, you know, there. But you know, for the grace of God, go I. I mean, like, you know, I, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, you know, as a as a as a partner in a law firm, I'm. I have a bit of more control over my own situ- work situation and destiny and mm-hmm. things like that. Right. Um, but if their rights aren't worth anything just be- for being foreigners, then what good are my rights really? And mm-hmm. what good are the rights of anybody really? I mean, we have mm-hmm. so much about equality written into the constitution and into our right. other laws. Mm-hmm. Um, the labor laws in particular lay out a lot of stuff about, you know, about gender equality and right. not discriminating based on, um, right. Ethnicity, nationality, language, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there needs to be some consistency. But thank you for pointing that out because I had heard some news about, um, and during COVID, this became more reported on because of the situation, the cases of migrant workers, as they're called, or the foreign workers that lived in the dormitories and uh, who were subject to very strict regulations of being in lockdown in the dormitories, but um, that was interesting for you to explain more in detail what some of these individuals are faced with. Well, we, we, we had clients, we have clients who right. have uh, migrant workers from mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. Philippines and, and right. Southeast Asia. and. What we told them, we said, you know, incentives are okay. You can tell people, and money matters a lot because a lot of these folks, they're yes. sending money home to their families yes. to support their yes. children, their spouses, yes. their parents, and so on. And they are happy to take every single bit of overtime they can get because they're here right. not, this is not a game to them. They're here to, to, you know, to try to get as much money as possible for the stability and health and well-being of their family back home. And that's part of the reason why they live under, you know, like they sometimes put up with um, conditions that, that honestly are are abhorrent, but um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's it. But the thing is this, is that like when it comes to that, then what you can do, you can at least say like on a voluntary basis, instead of saying you will be fired or you will, um, um, you know, you'll be penalized or you'll be, you know, if you don't follow our really disgusting racist rules. Well, the other way around to do it would be instead of doing it to say as an incentive, look, we care about your health and well-being. We, we don't want you to get sick. We know there's a pandemic out there. We know that right. the very nature of working in a factory means you cannot mm-hmm. have a home office and run the mm-hmm. machinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not available to you. And we know that this is that there are risks to this and we want you to be safe and we don't want you to die and we want you home to be able to get home in a few years time when you go back you know, repatriate to your your home country mm-hmm. we want you to do that in a healthy and well and happy situation mm-hmm. and right now this is an emergency and to, for your well-being what we're asking is you know we will give you this bonus you get this bonus if you um, and we will we will uber eats we'll bring in 
we'll 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 do the grocery shopping for you. You give us your list. We'll take care of it. Um, we'll give you this extra money. Um, you know, a, 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 like an extra per diem. We understand that that it is hard to be cooped up like this. Um, you know, we can arrange for some kind of outing. We can. Um, you know, do something in a safe and secure way, all masked up. We will have regular testing. We are going to do everything possible to protect you. If you do it from that standpoint, like from a, a, a perspective of working with the workers okay. to help them, that is so much better than this threatening tone. And especially when you see some of the rules and some of the communications mm -hmm. that were sent out to workers mm -hmm. along the lines of if you get sick and if you die, we will basically set it up. We will set it up so that um, you know, your your body will be cremated, and your family will never you know get to see you before you oh. know before burial. We wow. will Don't we'll have your body disposed of like that, and oh, wow. and we will make your family pay for your funeral. And we, and I'm thinking like, who who writes this kind of evil stuff? How can you? I Not mean, just that. I think that, like you said, these individuals are trying to make money to send home for their families in another country. I yeah. wonder if their family would even be able to afford <laughs> to retrieve the body, have a funeral, or whatever needs to be done. That's the thing. And it, it, besides, it's like if you if you coop up the workers, if you require yeah. them to be all like living um, six to a room or so yeah. and uh, yeah. in bunk beds and they've all got to be like uh, they all have to work together. And they, yeah. So they're kind of getting exposed to each other anyway. Yes. Um, and, and so what, you know, what signal are you sending? Because you're the one, you're the company who's taking full responsibility now for every single bit of their exposure. If they get exposed, if they catch it, and if they die, um, then, you know, take responsibility for that. That's like, I would see that as being, a, when you control the home life and the workplace environment completely, 100%, mm -hmm. um, then it's 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 kind of crazy to pretend that you have no responsibility for what happens. Right. But I mean, thank God it only, it only happened for a little while, but I would have loved it if the, um, if the central government had given a stronger rebuke. I know that in response to a bit of reporting from, um, Nikki Smith over it at the telegraph, um, that the coverage that, uh, in the efforts that, uh, she had made to, to cover this story uh, several months ago um, to bring it to light um, did result in some reaction from the Ministry of Health and from the CECC uh, and the Ministry of Labor, but it would have been nice if there had been a stronger effort to stop um, the Miali government folks from implementing these kinds of no foreigners allowed on public transport kind of, mm -hmm. I mean, just, you know, if anything comes out that's just you know, blatantly, you know, um, uh, xenophobic, blatantly yeah. racist. You, that's that's not what Taiwan's about. Taiwan, my experience yeah. here, the only, generally speaking, the normally, uh, the only, uh, you know, I, I've found Taiwan to be a very open and friendly society in which almost everybody has a cousin living somewhere, a brother, a cousin, a parent that's lived somewhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. 
everyone's got a cousin in Australia or a, or a, you know a sister who's you know living in Los Angeles or somebody every, like everyone has someone in their family who has at least lived overseas if they haven't lived over themselves mm-hmm. um, you know and, and there's a real difference in that and I think that you know the the norm the the normal way that I like to think of Taiwan is is like you know a very open-hearted and friendly place and when somebody does something that's dissonant with that it strikes me viscerally it like it yeah. it makes me you know I'm like wow you know hey meow Lee government you <laughs> why <laughs> why are you giving Taiwan a black eye why are yeah. you doing why are you yeah. why are you hurting mm-hmm. you know the reputation of Taiwan sure. by doing this yeah. yeah yeah what other issues are in need of legal reform in Taiwan of course abortion um, that's uh, that's another issue that's that's really you know on everyone's minds because of what's going on with uh, the Supreme Court case yeah, in the United States with Roe versus Wade, yeah Right. I mean, like, you know, every, every, every society kind of struggles with the idea of when does human life begin? Mm-hmm. And I think in Taiwan, you know, right now, of course, you have the, the, the requirement of spousal, spousal approval. Um, and so spousal uh, I, approval is required for women to be allowed to have an abortion. Yeah, yeah, and I guess the, the there's going to be a replacement um, of the you know for for underage um, underage persons you know that mm-hmm. they will be um, moving towards uh, a thing where you can have like mediation with your parent and guardian if you disagree if you're a teenager and you're um, and you've gotten pregnant and you would like to get an abortion mm-hmm. um, that if your parents disagree on that before parent parental or guardian consent was required. Um, so, uh, you know, exactly how that's going to work, I, I'm not really sure. Right. Um, but it is, you know, I think it's a profound, um, you know, thing that uh, I think Taiwan doesn't have the same religious kind of or political treatment of this issue necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, I'm, and, I, and I think that's good because um, I, know, I know that there are people who, um, their situations are so hard, uh, you know, no, for example, like late term abortions, which, you know, the United States calls people oh, to freak yeah. out. And, and I understand if it was just a matter of like, oh, I'd like to just simply not have a perfectly healthy baby, uh, you know, eight and a half months in on a pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, that would be, I mean, that would feel a bit more like infanticide because the baby would be viable yeah. outside the womb and it, right. you've proceeded that far. But if it was more like, um, uh, you know, but you know, as 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 many people have pointed out, I think as uh, Pete Buttigieg in the United States, uh, the Secretary of Transportation, but at that stage he was a he was uh, you know just uh, this this sense that um, you know, the people, the parents that have that actually have late term abortions, do so because of horrific circumstances usually involving um, the life and death of the mother or the you know the the lack of viability of the child and uh, you know the heartbreaking situation for those parents where you know say you know this is an experience from out of you know my own family is uh, out of out of, of my um, 
not my my own personal me and my wife, but but from within my family is is uh, within your family, you know, sure, someone you're within my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, to get say five six months in on a pregnancy, and they discover that the baby has um, zero because of a health problem that's been discovered, the baby mm-hmm. has zero chance mm-hmm. of viability, and to force the mother on a mental health grounds to force the mother to carry through to mm-hmm. nine months. Mm-hmm. For for another four, you know, three four months mm-hmm. to carry within her a, a, a child that has a hundred percent chance of dying upon being born mm-hmm. is just heartbreaking. It's just, and, and I know every there's some parents that would that would want to follow the full process and get through it, mm-hmm. and that's that's fine mm-hmm. for them. Uh, mm-hmm. But for those who who can't, um, you know. Why on earth would you force them? And I and I say that you know I I, I mean I, so Taiwan I, I would say there's not that same dimension where there's like this kind of you know kind of like trying mm-hmm. to declare the other side in the mm-hmm. discussion to be monsters um, mm-hmm. because you know there's not this attempt to try to say that like oh those people who support abortion you know, abortion rights and the right of women to choose and so on mm-hmm. uh, that they are ghouls and that they want to murder yeah. babies or that they mm-hmm. that they thirst for the idea of a late term abortion opportunity to commit infanticide mm-hmm. or something like that it's not that you never see that that attempt to just cast mm-hmm. the other side into mm-hmm. like the most negative possible my interview with john continued beyond this as we talked about other issues and areas in need of legal reform in taiwan we'll share that in another future episode of talking taiwan do you see any legal reform happening in the case of uh, these examples that you gave with the public insult and uh, parade and assembly or in any, any other like uh, labor laws or things? Do you see any legal reform happening? I mean, sexual issues? harassment, you know, I think sexual harassment is a big change. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some improvement, I think some real improvement going on there. And I'm seeing definitely with companies about the treatment of overtime and okay. employees' records, working records and things like that. Privacy is making huge advancements um, because, you know, employers are becoming aware that they're handling um, huge amounts of very personal data, including, to some extent, medical records. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's there's like... There is, there is a greater sensitivity to a lot of things that there that wasn't there a few years ago, and uh, the willingness of companies to accommodate, um, you know, persons who are uh, of different, you know, like uh, you know the LGBTQ community, um, you know, I, to see like the the way in which now companies are embracing that, and you know, Pride Month and everything else. There's a bit of a change in terms of attitude over time. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, one of the things I guess um, you know I, I guess we're probably not going to see any real changes to the Assembly and Parade Act uh, soon because it was changed uh, I guess back in 2021. So that's not that long mm-hmm. ago, you know, about a year and a half ago. Right. Um, I think uh, you know there's a greater willingness of people to file complaints about sexual harassment and Mm -hmm. to try to address that. And I think there's a growing willingness of companies to address this very seriously. Um, Yeah, I just heard that there was a law about um, stalkers, some uh, anti-stalking 
law. That's a thing that a lot of legal systems struggle with, um, and I think that's really important. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATWA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATWA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.